Hey guys, just a note on today's show, uh, we had planned for one episode on uh, feeding um, and we ended up going long. And so we actually split uh, today's episode into um, two parts. Um, so the uh, first part will air on uh, September 11th, Friday, and the second part will air on uh, Friday, September 18th. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the seven day work week, the labor after labor podcast. Today, we are talking about all things breastfeeding and formula feeding. Liz, do you want to start us out with the quote? Yeah. So the quote I found today um, uh, is from 150 AD. So we're going back almost two centuries mm -hmm. uh, to investigate uh, the kind of societal pressure that uh, um, is put on women uh, to naturally breastfeed. Um, and this is from ancient Rome. And so the quote uh, asks, are you one of those who think that nature gave a woman breasts, not that she might feed her children, but as pretty little hillocks to give her bust a pleasing contour? Many indeed of our present day ladies do try to dry up and repress that sacred font of the body the nourisher of the human race, even at the risk they run from turning back and corrupting their milk, lest it should take off from the charm of their beauty. Uh, so this quote is so great because, I mean, there's this inherent kind of judgment and sarcasm involved. Like, are you one of these that would dare to think of yourself uh, and, and, uh, uh, cultivate your beauty um, as opposed to doing the sacred act of breastfeeding. So breastfeeding, and we see this today, it's, it's, it's considered this sacred thing, right? Which is something that is special and, and set apart and otherworldly almost. And um, so there's all of this rhetoric around um, how important breastfeeding is, which is not to say that breastfeeding isn't important, but there is definitely this rhetorical buildup of it being kind of the be all end all of womanhood. Um, and that you would, uh, you know, uh, if, if you were thinking about your own looks, that you're a completely shallow asshole. Um, <laughs> and um, this is not new, right? This is 150 AD. Um, and so that's, I think it really demonstrates that this kind of obsession around how women use their bodies appropriately is not a new thing in any way. This has been going on basically for all of recorded history. That That's insane to me. I I'm floored. I mean... Uh, just as you were talking, literally two seconds before I hit the record button, we both made comments about how our babies look so cute all the time and we look like bags of garbage. Mm -hmm. And it's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, putting this type of uh, societal beauty and kind of the decision of are you going to let your body... I'm not going to say go to crap because that's terrible, but are you going to let your body, um, you know, change into a motherly body or are you going to perhaps alter or not do that? And that's, I feel like that's less of the argument currently with uh, breastfeeding versus formula, but it's still in our society all the time. I just told Liz a story. I was scrolling through TikTok a couple nights ago and someone, um, a plastic surgeon, I'll try to find it, put a TikTok up. They're a minute long. They're just a little blurb. And she said, do you want to know a way to know if you need a breast lift? Take a pen, 
stick it under your breast. And if the nipple and breast tissue fall over the pen, then you need a breast lift. If it doesn't, then you don't. And I just sat there and I looked at my boobs and I'm like, oh God. But like all the comments were like, so anyone over a D or a C needs a breast lift? Like what kind of message are you portraying? Because I mean, TikTok is a lot of young people as well. So like what kind of message are you portraying to our children more or less and our teenagers, Mm. but as well as mothers, it's full of mothers. So like, yeah, I guess you're getting your marketing out and you're like, you might need a breast lift. However, at what cost? It's brilliant marketing too, because uh, you don't have to, right? This is a, a, a medical intervention. You know, it's not necessarily, it's, a, it's an elective medical intervention, but in creating this TikTok video, you're allowing your audience or potential patient to self-diagnose themselves. They don't even have to come into the office for you to body shame them and tell them that they need to pay for a breast lift. You can do it through TikTok. I mean, I, I, it's 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 you have to applaud um, how uh, predatory that marketing is, really. But, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I definitely would need a breast lift now, um, uh, according to that uh, TikTok video. I think we all would. I mean, <laughs> unless you're 14 years old, yeah. well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. And I, oh God, I don't even know what to say about that. It it floored me. And then you have this quote of, from ancient Rome. So initially, I was like, oh yeah, 500 years ago. No, 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 thousands of yes. years ago. Not 1500, 150. I mean, yeah. it's 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 mind blowing. And I think even though you're right, like. I don't think all the time the whole breastfeeding dichotomy, more often it's formula versus um, breastfeeding, right? Than this idea of beauty versus motherly body. Um, But either way, it proposes this dichotomy and that that it's one or the other. And it's also that um, if you are not breastfeeding, well, then you must be selfish in some way. And so uh, there's this kind of selfish versus selfless rhetoric around um, your choices of feeding for your children. Um, and maybe that changes culturally depending on the time. Um, like we also mentioned that in um, the 18th and 19th century, formula didn't exist, but what did exist for bourgeois women were uh, wet nurses. And so there's all of this um, cultural guilt um, around uh, if you are breastfeeding or not. Should I read that quote too? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so this was... Um, This was a quote from 1749. Um, And so it's not only the quote doesn't also only demonstrate these issues of like motherhood and guilt, but also of class. And in this case, it's, you know, um, the poor classes are the wonderful, you know, humble class and the rich ones are uh, assholes. So the quote is uh, the mother who has only a few rags to cover her child loosely and little more than her own breast to feed it sees it healthy and strong and very soon able to shift for itself while the puny insect the heir and hope of a rich family lies languishing and so there's all of this red i mean the non-breast and and again they would be breastfed just by a wet nurse like they're still being breastfed but that that 
the mother who doesn't breastfeed her own child is raising a puny insect. I mean, the rhetoric of that. They're subpar. They're not going to be living up to their potential because the mother chose to not breastfeed. And and then the hardy peasant stock, you know, they're like the salt of the earth. They're noble. Um, And meanwhile, there's no critique of why they only have rags to cover themselves. No one's talking about that. It's like, ah, what a wonderful mother. Isn't she beautiful with only her rags? She's selfless. She's putting it all in. Oh, man. Yes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, that's just, just so interesting to me because, you know, mom shaming or whatever is something that's only, it's new. It's, you know, it's only now it's because of the um, internet society and our shift to being more faceless on the internet and whatever, but it's, it's been around forever and you're always going to be told whether or not you're a good mom. And in this instance, it's, you know, if you're rich, you're just going to have this puny little nothing going around. That's funny. I love it. Yeah. Even as you were saying this, like this phrase always going to be told, like really strung out to me, stood, stood out to me. Um, it's like, I, it's this larger issue, I think of patriarchy and feminism where it's like, of course, women as like, a, we are not men, right. We're the other, we're the, we're the not normal. And so we have this, this thing that is different that demarcates us as different is like our biological ability uh, to have children and to raise them. Um, and so it's unsurprising that a patriarchal society then decides, well, I must conduct how you use that. You have something I don't have. You have this kind of uh, inherent ability. So let's tell you how to use it and what's appropriate for how you use it. Um, I, it's just a larger symptom of you know centuries of patriarchy. Um, and some people are now maybe unsubscribing from our podcast because of my feminism. I don't know. <laughs> you know what? Just get on board because I feel like the longer we're going to do this, you know, we started out, not that we were tiptoeing around anything, but I have a feeling the longer we do this, the more it's just going to come out. Yeah, it just I, it just really occurred to me now, like, no wonder there's such obsession with it. It's because we live in a male-dominated society, so they're obsessed with it. Right, right. I mean, they're obsessed with boobs. Of course. Yes, that's the other thing, right? <laughs> they're, they're the sexual gaze. They're exactly what you want from us. Which, and so how are you using that? You're, it's, not for, it's not for adult males um, when they're being used uh, uh, for breastfeeding. Well, yeah, it's something I didn't research or think we'd even talk about, but the whole idea of breastfeeding in public and how unacceptable and unprofessional, or not unprofessional, but you know what I mean? Like how unacceptable this is in modern society. How dare women whip to their breasts out and feed their baby in public. That's disgusting. That's vulgar. That's Mm -hmm. pornographic. No, it's a natural thing. A mother is feeding her daughter or son. It's no different than her whipping Mm -hmm. out a bottle. Um, It just happens to be part of the female anatomy, but because Mm -hmm. we sexualize breasts and we sexualize women so much, um, it's putting breasts in a negative light and they don't want to see it. Yeah. So yeah. get out of here. It reminds me too of this like little reference I read in an article to the the author said that in the 90s, and maybe this was just like the internet generally, I'm not sure, but she said in the 90s, there was a rise in lactation porn. Um, and so, I know, I know. So you talk about the sexualization of breasts generally, but then also that there becomes these weird niche fetish in the porn industry of, uh, 
you know, uh, people being attracted to like, and I know Emily should see Emily's face right now. I know it's so <laughs> disgusting. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah. Let's not, let's not like, let's not fetish shame anybody to an extent. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it's like, it's so interesting that there would be that that's a, that, that that's a niche fetish because it's, it's the opposite of anything sexual in my mind. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's this utilitarian feeding. Yeah. No, I don't feel sexual at all when I'm uh, breastfeeding. I feel like a machine. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. You feel like a cow. You feel just like this is, you know. It's- yes. Or an animal. Yes. A machine or an animal. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, in- oh God. Ugh. I know. I'm just thinking about that. That's gross. <laughs> I know. I know. I wonder, and whatever, but I wonder if the men or women who are right. getting into this fetish, I wonder if they're like, they've never been around breastfeeding. Like, I wonder if it's something kind of like intriguing. Cause I feel like, I don't think my husband would ever look at that because one, he's not a weirdo. Sorry, everyone. But two, like, I don't know. Like it's not, you are around it so much. And when you're around it all the time, it's not sexualized whatsoever. You're just whipping your boob out. Yes. You're feeding your baby. You're putting your boob away. It's your boob swollen. It's leaky. It's not pretty. So like, I do wonder what the, who looks into that? Like, why would that even be a thing? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And, and I imagine in general, I, who knows, who knew that we were going to start talking about pornography. Uh, but I, I think in general, maybe there's um, an attraction to something exotic or something other that you're not used to. And so I, I, I think that, yes, my, if I were to place money on it, if I were to put all my money in Vegas, on it, I would say that people who are attracted to lactation porn do not have a lot of experience uh, with nursing infants. Correct. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that they would find it so sexy if they had actually experienced it in any way firsthand. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. 100%. Okay, to get off porn. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No. My bad. <laughs> do you want to talk about your breastfeeding story as of yet? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, Margo's a a, a month old today, actually. Um, and so we've been pretty successful with breastfeeding. I, um, when I, uh, was in the hospital, you know, I had a lactation consultant come and the first try was, is in the afternoon after she was born and, you know, she did not latch successfully at first. Um, and the nurse left me with a nipple shield, um, which if you're not familiar, it's this like silicone um, uh, kind of nipple that sits over your your natural nipple um, and makes it easier for the infant to latch on because it's like a longer thing and it stimulates their oh. suck reflex on the roof of their mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she hadn't, she, but she still wasn't latching. They left me with this tool, but they left. Um, she still wasn't latching. My husband was getting increasingly like anxious and even angry that the baby had been, you know, alive for 12 hours and hadn't eaten yet. And so he went and he got a breast pump from the nurse's station and he put that thing on max capacity. I am telling you, <laughs> he was pumping me like a cow. He let, cooked me up. And I was like, oh, my God, this, this hurts. And I, I was like, that hurts. Oh, my God. And um, but I didn't know any better. I didn't know there were lower settings. Right. Um, and I pumped almost two ounces of colostrum. Jeez. And so the the breast 
the the lactation consultant came in a few hours later to see what was going on. And she saw the colostrum sitting there in a little uh, bottle. She said, where did you get that? And I said, well, I pumped it, obviously. Where do you think I got it? The guy down the street. Right. Do you think I stole it from one of the other mothers? Like I tiptoed into someone's room <laughs> and was like, ah, I'm getting that colostrum from you. Uh, no, I pumped it. And she was like, this is so much. And I, I was like, see, Jason, you put that thing on too high. Um, but so then we drop or fed her that because she still wasn't latching. Um, and so that eased Jason's anxiety a little bit because he was getting really kind of upset that she hadn't eaten yet. Um, and then I think maybe the next day um, the nipple shield worked. Um, I honestly can't even remember if it was one of the lactation consultants or just um, I was working on my own. I really can't even remember. But that nipple shield is what got me there. Mm-hmm. Um and there's been no change. I am still using the nipple shield at every feeding, um, which I am increasingly having guilt about. I, the when I called the, you know, my hospital, like many hospitals, has like a lactation consultant hotline that you can call. Um, and so I've asked them if, and I've asked my pediatrician if there's any issue with me using the nipple shield, and they've always told me no. Um, it's just cumbersome because you have to clean them and sanitize them. And so mm-hmm. breastfeeding has this, and maybe we'll talk about this more, but it has this kind of convenience factor built mm-hmm. in because you're just, you don't have to um, create the formula, make sure it's the right temperature, feed the baby, then clean the bottles, sanitize the bottles and dry the bottles. There's all of these steps involved with a formula feeding that make it really challenging. Whereas breastfeeding, it's the right temperature innately, so you just throw them on. So the only issue that's ever been expressed to me with the nipple shield is that they become reliant on it. And it's like, okay, but why is that a problem? Um, and and it's not very convenient for you. So it's like, okay, so as long as I can handle cleaning the nipples, I can keep her breast or I can keep her on the nipple shield. But um, I have, I don't know. Now I'm like second guessing the whole thing. Cause I found more like information about it in researching for this podcast. Um, and so some of the cons of using the nipple shield that are making me feel the classic mom guilt are that, um, apparently my hormones aren't being stimulated as well with the nipple shield. Hmm. Um, and so my supply may decrease and then I would have to supplement with formula because I can't keep up with baby's demand. Interesting. Um, and so one website was like saying, this happens, your supply will decrease. And then another website was like, your supply may decrease. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, I don't know what are the stats on this. And I haven't found any like hard and fast studies that demonstrated, mm-hmm. but apparently in some way, the nipple shield is affecting your hormones. So it might affect your supply. Um, and so... Uh, other issues are that you could get recurrent plug ducts mm. uh, or mastitis because yeah. your milk is not necessarily draining effectively. Again, I haven't experienced this in any way. Um, they tell you also, they suggest that your baby can't drain your breast fully on the nipple shield. Again, first I'm hearing of this. And again, if I'm asking the lactation people this and I'm asking my pediatrician this, why am I not getting this information? Right. Or is this not, or is this, uh, you know, 
hyper blown up. Almost a scare tactic trying to get you to not use this. Right. And what's the big fucking deal is what I'm trying to understand. So then they're saying you should maybe pump after. And I will say that when I'm pumped, I'm not having any plug ducts. You know, you can see what's coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I don't think I've had any plug ducts yet. Uh, You'd feel them. You'd feel them. Yeah. And so, so at this point it's like, I have a few times tried to get her to latch just without the shield. Um, But she, and she's done it for a few seconds, but then she gets frustrated and starts screaming Mm. because she's hungry. And now she's not, um, she's not latching. It's different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, 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 I read some tips on how to get her on my natural breast. It's like, uh, you know, if you're interested in all, you're experiencing this, some of the tips that I came across were like ice your nipples so that they're harder. So it's easier for baby to recognize them. Cause now the baby's used to this like long silicone nipple and it's very mm-hmm. clear to her, whereas your own natural nipple is much smaller. So she's not really grabbing onto it. Um, and uh, what was another tip? Oh, do it when they're not so hungry so that they don't get so anxious. So maybe oh. do like a bait and switch, like start with uh, the nipple shield and then switch. Mm. Um, so those are some of the tips that, that could work. Um, and then I just, so that's where I am with my anxiety that no matter, no, first of all, no matter what you do, you know, you you feel like you're doing it wrong. Uh, and I think that that's a thing. Um, but just to, just to sort of flip on the nipple shield. Um, so yeah, I, I found another article where this, and this was just, um, uh, a woman sort of blogging her opinion about nipple shields. And what she said was she'd come across a lot of lactation experts that would just say, oh, I hate nipple shields. I hate nipple shields. And so she kind of said, well, there's all these reasons why nipple shields are really useful. Like if you have inverted nipples, um, they help you if your baby is tongue tied um, or has, quote, a bubble palate. Um, these are really helpful tools that will get you to latch. Um, I guess... And, and and also, can I just say, um, they protect your nipples from becoming really sore. I was going to ask that. So, and I feel like, so way before I was ever pregnant, I remember reading an article um, that was kind of in defense of formula. And it talked about, you know, when you breastfeed, you lose a lot of sensation in your nipples and they, they crack and they can bleed and it's really painful. Um, and so when I came across this nipple shield, it was like, oh. Well, this will protect me from losing that part of my body and altering that part of my body. So it was really exciting, like that this was an option. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. can I just use it for that and not feel guilty about it? I don't know. Because then all the women, so it's this pro nipple shield article, but it's got all these reasons for why you use it. You know, it's like, if your baby is tongue tied, if your baby has bubble palate, if they have trouble latching, use it for a period of time, then wean. And then all the comments of the women that responded were like, you know, I tried breastfeeding and it didn't work. So, and so what I'm wondering is like, do you have to have this whole narrative and medical reason why you use a nipple shield or can I just use it because it's working for me and I don't want to change? Like, is that allowed? Or am I now a selfish asshole mother who isn't working hard enough for the natural breast to mouth latch? And so, I mean, like there's no, as far as I'm concerned, she's not tongue tied. There's no medical reason why I'm needing to use it, but I just, um, it's working for us. So why am I, um, you know, if it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. 
Right. You know what I mean? But I just thought it was interesting that like every single response to this pro nipple shield article, every mom had like a whole narrative of why they needed to use it. And it's like, well, can we just use it? Because it's easy. It's convenient. That's really, yeah, that's really, really interesting because every, I don't, I don't know much about the nipple shield. I have kind of a story that I thought I was giving a nipple shield, but the more you told me about yours, I realized I was not giving a nipple. I was not given a nipple shield. Um, everything I ever heard about a nipple shield was negative, was, um, you know, you brought up the other day, uh, babies can get blisters on their little lips or whatever. And I, I heard that somewhere, I don't know where, but I remember hearing that. And I remember hearing, um, the not able to, um, empty your breast fully due to the nipple shield. And like, I don't even know why I've heard these things because I never had interaction with a nipple shield. So, I mean, for someone who has never even been given the option of one, and I already have a negative connotation in my head about them. Yes. That's putting a narrative in your head. Who's currently using one and having success and giving you doubt saying, well, shit, should I be using this or am I doing this incorrectly? Right. But it's working. Yeah, exactly. You said it perfectly. If it's not broken, why fix it? Like if it ain't broke, don't fix. Yeah. And, um, I, and even as I think about it, so these are all like, like they're all reputable enough sources, right. That are saying the cons, right. It's like, um, like for instance, this like list of cons that I was reading earlier is from the San Diego breastfeeding center, um, which is some sort of association, nonprofit association. Um, and I found similar lists throughout the internet from other sort of, uh, lactation friendly organizations. Um, but my question is my, my kind of observation that I'm finding is the, the organization that's saying this itself is reputable, but where are the scientific studies that are demonstrating that this is true? Yes. I'm not seeing none of this information is cited from, you know, some study that compared hormone release in women who breastfed directly versus uh, used a nipple shield. I'm not seeing that study. Um, and so that's not to say it's not out there, but all of these are sort of stated as truisms and the ethos of the lactation association is meant to convince me. But I'm just wondering like, well, where did we get this truism from in the first place? Is this just something that like lactation people are saying? Like that blog that I referenced from uh, Miss Emma Pickett, where she was saying, you know, in defense of nipple shields, I'm always hearing these lactation women just say, ah, I hate them. So where is this information coming from is, is something that we should look further into, I think. Yeah. So I have this one article by uh, verywellbaby.com and it's about oxytocin and breastfeeding. And uh, one of the things that says when your baby latches onto your breast and their mouth touches your breast, especially your nipples, the nerve cells in your breast send a signal to your brain to release oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone that then tells your nipples and your breasts to do the letdown so your baby can feed. Um, so I can understand that in the sense of like the very basic science, because I'm not going to get into it. I'm not a lactation consultant. I don't know things. but that basic science would make me think, okay, if perhaps if you were using a nipple shield, perhaps that stimulation of your nipple and the nerve endings in your nipple may not be as strong 
perhaps. Right, because it's got that piece of silicone. But I wonder, I mean, like, isn't my nipple still being simulated just through? All right, I guess that would be to say, yeah, I guess that makes sense. That makes sense. Perhaps. I mean, yeah. again, I, this is the only thing I can maybe think of. Um, and it's saying the more oxytocin is released, the um, easier the milk continues to flow out of your breast, da da da. Um, oxytocin is responsible for the letdown reflex. Um, but it has nothing to do with the amount. Uh, that's pato- or no, that's prolactin. That's a different hormone. Um, but I mean, that's the only thing I can really think of. But what I wanted to talk about, as you were kind of talking about, were these um, organizations and initiatives for pro breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And I have um, an instance with the Baby Friendly US um, initiative, but as I was going through their website, because it's a lengthy website, they're connected with UNICEF and it's like this national um, guideline on how to successfully train women to breastfeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are initiatives that hospitals are adopting in order to promote breastfeeding. And as I was going through this website, I'll kind of talk about it more, but I wasn't finding a lot of like, this is what we say and this is why, like, again, you're what you were saying, I'm not finding a lot of these articles or these research journals or anything that's saying, you know, A, because of B or whatever. So I do think it's interesting that these organizations are kind of changing the way ho- even hospitals or lactation consultants or breastfeeding um, support groups or anything is conducting themselves. But again, where's Where's the hard concrete science? It's hard to find. It's there. It's got to be there, but it's hard to find. Yes. And uh, right. I want long-term population studies of a group, uh, you know, a large group comparing the two groups and saying, what are the outcomes? That's what I want to see, but I'm not seeing that linked anywhere. Again, um, I could, you know, we could comb through some like uh, scientific journals and some uh, pediatric journals and see uh, but what's on the websites themselves, they're not referencing that material. Correct. They're just stating it as facts. Seems like, right. So it just seems like a truism among that professional sect of people. And I'm just wondering, you know, where's the science? And again, it might be there and we just haven't come across it, Correct. but I feel like they should have a responsibility to cite it, frankly. Right. And it should be a more common thing. The fact that we have to comb through, you know, medical journals and pediatric journals. I'm not going to do that as a normal mom. I'm not going to like, let me find this journal, this scholarly article and this, that I'm going to look at babyfriendly.org and I'm going to read this list of 10 things. Like I don't have time for that. And Great point. Yeah. And I don't have time. I Some people don't have the knowledge. Some people don't have the wherewithal. And some people just don't care. And who has access to scientific journals necessarily? Like you have to, you know, steal it through your old university login. <laughs> uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, that's, you know, you don't necessarily have, you don't have access to all of them. So, um, you know, they're not exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, and I, I don't want to say this because I know this is going to get us off topic. Um Yeah, because I just have to say on what you were bringing up with baby-friendly stuff, but I want to hear about your story, if you're ready to tell it, like your whole experience with feeding. Yeah, it uh, the baby-friendly USA definitely ties into my experience, so we'll definitely hit that. But the one thing that kind of like sparked my brain while you were talking is, you know, you said you want to see trends and data and things, but 
and you might have more information on this than I do because I pulled very little information, but like the trends of breastfeeding itself is constantly going like pro breastfeeding, pro formula, pro breastfeeding, pro formula, you know? Um, and it kind of goes in ebbs and flows. And it's, and my wonder is, I'm assuming there's always going to be continuing research on this topic, but like maybe because at this current time we are very pro breastfeeding, there's not prolonged study. There's not prolonged data to give you that kind of information. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm curious. Do you, did you have any information on like trends? I do. I do have information on trends. So um, I read this great article. The kind of flaw of this article is that um, it was published in 1988, but it still nevertheless gives a good um, uh, overview of like 20th century kind of shifts in formula versus uh, breastfeeding. Um, so the article is called uh, Tradition and Technology in Infant Feeding, Achieving the Best of Both Worlds. Um, and this is written um, by someone named A.W. Myers. Um, and uh, so what they point out is that breastfeeding was the norm until about the 50s and 60s in the in the in the early 60s it reached its pinnacle where um, I'm sorry formula feeding reached its pinnacle where if you were a baby born in the 50s and 60s you're probably fed on formula um, and uh, so some of the things that they pointed out was this was a, a Canadian based writer and so they talked about there's like a national uh, uh, text called Canadian Mother and Child that was put out to like give information to new mothers. And that mm -hmm. in those years, um, there was information on breastfeeding. They said that they kind of just did lip service though, to that adage of breast is best. So they'd say breast is best, but actually most of the articles were about how to prepare formula, when to give formula, how to dose formula. Mm -hmm. um, and that, so, so there was like um, a, uh, an education um, kind of gap in breastfeeding that started promoting formula and maybe that because it was a new product. And so they felt they had to explain it. Mm -hmm. Um, but that breastfeeding, it was still the breast is best rhetoric was still there, but it sort of got overshadowed. Um, and then also what happened is hospital staff really liked formula because it was convenient for them because mm -hmm. they weren't having to teach new mothers how to latch, how to, or how to, you know, latch with their newborns. Um, and there were also all of these convenient things that hospital staff could do. Like now, um, today, if you give uh, birth in the West, rooming in is the norm where your baby stays with you overnight. But even like, you know, when my mom gave birth, the baby went to the nursery. Um, and, and so that that is even kind of new, this idea of rooming in or new again, where you stay with your baby right away. Whereas it was sort of convenient for the hospital staff to take the baby, have massive amounts of formula and feed them on these schedules. But that was just convenient. And so then the baby right away in the first days of life is used to formula, is used to the bottle. And so then it becomes harder to get them breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh then in the 70s, which of course this is interesting because again, this is sort of concurrent with second wave feminism and the issues that we talked about when we talked about natural labor versus unnatural labor, where there's this 1970s, uh, maybe hippie a little, sort of return to 
feminism and like women's bodies as natural things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it um, so there's the return to breastfeeding, but as that transition's happening, um, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of totally ironic because then there's also the feminism of the 1970s that is go out and work and get a job and breastfeeding then becomes hard for the 1970s feminist because how are you going to breastfeed when you are in the workplace, especially before there are like federal mandates requiring you to have, um, pumping rooms and all of those things set aside. And so it totally, um, you know, as the article said, um, they, the article quoted a physician that said, you know, a lot of women choose not to breastfeed because it ties them down. And so it's this like twin, twin, like kind of difference where it's like, is your feminism, I'm a natural woman and therefore I breastfeed or is your feminism, I'm a working woman that goes out into the world um, and therefore I don't breastfeed. And so it's like this weird kind of, they're both feminist, but they're totally different kind of um, projects. Um, And the other thing that they mentioned and this was uh, in the early 70s. So as things are starting to switch back to breastfeeding as the um, uh, uh, supported thing by the medical establishment, this doctor that uh, Myers quoted said that um, they don't want to make women who can't breastfeed feel guilty. And hmm. so it's really interesting because now I definitely think we do not give a shit and make women who don't breastfeed feel very guilty. Yep. And so it's kind of interesting because we're always saying, you know, that we're, you know, big snowflakes today and we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But in this arena, we don't give a shit about hurting women's feelings for not breastfeeding. Whereas in the according to this doctor, you know, that was quoted in this article, that that was something that doctors were aware of that they didn't want to make, um, mothers who are formula feeding for whatever reason feel guilty. Um, and we've lost that give a care. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that's a thing now in the medical community where anyone is concerned about the shame, um, that, uh, is put on new moms if they, they don't breastfeed. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just a side thing. I also found an article, let me pull it up, um, by self.com that was, um, how the pressure to breastfeed can exasperate postpartum depression in women. And um, it was just a woman's story talking about it. It's more or less talking about how due to her inability to breastfeed and the pressures from her, not only her family, but also the medical society um, caused her to get postpartum depression because she quote unquote failed as a mother. She failed as a provider. Mm. She cannot um, mm-hmm. you know, live up to these standards that breast is best. And then she got postpartum depression. So it's something to really think about that. I understand making a comment here or there. Oh, like even asking, is your baby breastfed or whatever? Um, you know, it, you have to really think about how that can affect somebody because it, it's a struggle. It's a very emotional struggle that we'll kind of get into later, but, um, I don't know. I might just cut this whole thing out. I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. No, it's it's important because it's like this idea there. We'll, we'll talk about like the science of breast milk versus formula, but it's like, okay, so yes, there are medical benefits with antibodies to using breast milk. However, the fact is that breast milk is not 
necessarily available to every child. It's not, it's, it's just, it's just a fact. And so creating a whole culture of shame and guilt for new moms is completely unproductive because what are you supposed to do about it? There's nothing you can do. Right. And so just making you feel like you're a piece of shit is only creating now a mental health crisis in new moms um, at the expense of, you know, some babies not necessarily getting every single antibody. It's like, so that's not the, the tra- what, what, there's no point. There's no point in creating that shame culture. It's not, it's not going to suddenly make you start lactating more. Right. Actually. And while I would, while you were talking, I was thinking about it more than likely actually does the opposite effect because you aren't getting that oxytocin. You're not getting that hormone in your brain. If you're depressed or, you know, getting these depressive thoughts, you're not getting that oxytocin, which is in turn helping produce your breast milk. So, you know, I'm assuming there's has to be studies on that. I I didn't find one, unfortunately. Um, I didn't even think about it until now. But there has to be a direct correlation between depression, oxytocin, and I'm assuming a shift or decrease in a woman's ability to produce breast milk. Um, Yeah. So anyway. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Yes, I wonder if there are numbers with diagnosis with postpartum depression and breastfeeding mothers. There has to be. Is there a number? There has to be. Yeah, that's a, and if there's not, scientists, get on collating that data. Let's get on it. Yeah, there's got to be. And I wonder, huh, I also wonder, like, if a woman gets on an antidepressant, how that's going to affect her breast milk. Would she mm-hmm. be able to, in turn... Because it's all hormones. It's all hormones. It's all oxytocin. It's all everything inside the brain. So, and then that makes me wonder if there is a correlation between antidepressants and perhaps an increase in ability to breastfeed or, you know, would an antidepressant for a mother who is struggling be an option? Yeah. I mean, these are all, yeah. Maybe we should do another Maybe Listeners, we we, we, yeah, we may come back to this because this episode, more than anything, we keep saying, you know, I wish I had found numbers on this. And so maybe we can kind of come back and do some more research and, and bring you some things. Absolutely. Yeah, I uh, I totally agree. And, you know, God willing, and hopefully that you'll still be breast. You will. Everything you've been telling me, you're like, oh, this is, you know, you haven't run into any breastfeeding issues. So well, unless apparently I'm like uh, fucking up my production and I'm going to wake up tomorrow and uh, suddenly I'm dry. I don't, don't know. think that because then it's going <laughs> to mess with the stressors in your brain and the oxytocin and all that stuff we just talked about. But anyway, yeah, I think that'd be a great idea that maybe in a couple episodes we'll get a little more information and we'll retouch on all this, but yeah. Okay. I do have one more thing to say about like the history and trends. Yeah. Should I say it now? Yeah. So um, the, another like kind of big world moment for affecting the trends in um, breastfeeding versus formula happened between like 1979 and 1981. So in 1979, the World Health Organization got the baby food industry and all of these um, big uh, formula producers and dairy producers that had kind of branched off into baby formula to agree to stop any kind of predatory, non-medically sound promotion of infant formula. Hmm. So before 1979, there was some false advertising that was without scientific basis involved in promoting formula as an industry. And the World Health Organization got them to stop. And then in 1981, 
um, the 118 member countries of the World Health Organization all agreed um, that uh, um, these uh, uh, there should be an international code of marketing of breast milk. They, they all signed it. The only country that did not agree to sign it was the United States because God forbid we curb uh, predatory marketing. Yes, uh, God forbid. I mean, the only the only ones. Um, but every other member country said that um, they needed to curb this. And um, what uh, was the kind of focus of this, though, was not the Western world, but was instead the third world, um, the so-called third world, you know, where uh, or the, the uh, less developed countries. Um, so uh, this was an article from The New York Times in 1979. So it's concurrent um, with this agreement. Um, and so, uh, what was going on was that, um, there was a lot of promotion in these, uh, less developed countries to use breast milk by, or to, I'm sorry, to use formula by these companies. And so impoverished mothers were using it because they were convinced that it was better. Um, but then they couldn't necessarily afford to continue buying it and their milk production then is already low because Mm. they haven't been relying on it. And so then they're going to substitutes that are not as good nutritionally. Mm -hmm. And so then their infants were dying of higher rates of malnourishment. Oh my God. Uh, because, you know, they, the moms then had to, because they couldn't afford it, were going to cheaper formula that didn't have um, all the fortifying nutrients and all of those things that the formula companies do put in. Oh. Um, and so uh, in the third world, infant mortality, which was often associated with malnutrition. So it's like often it's like they'll get pneumonia and they have, they're malnourished and so they die. Oh my God. And so it's like, so it's, you know, this kind of effect uh, that happens. And so um, in the third world, um, at this time in 1979, um, infant mortality was 25 times higher um, than, um, you know, so-called first world nations. Wow. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so then that that was a, a big turning point, I think. And so we talk about this kind of back and forth. And um, it does seem like mid-century um, there was that was the spike of uh, formula and then we've kind of gone back totally um, to to breastfeeding as ideal mm-hmm. um, in terms of numbers really quickly. Um, and actually, it seems like formula is now sort of doing what it was meant to do, which is to be a supplement. So in the U.S., um, according to the CDC's breastfeeding report card published in 2020, um, 84% of infants have been breastfed at some point. Um, 58% have been breastfeeding for six months. Um, and 35% have been breastfeeding for a full year. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, it seems that, uh, now formula is acting as a sort of supplement and, um, in the beginning, breastfeeding is, is being used. And then for whatever reason, it's, it's, uh, it's discontinued and then people move into formula. So it's the sort of dual approach, um, today. Which is almost the perfect segue into my story. Interesting. Right. Cause I want to, I want to hear about you. Yeah. And one more thing, uh, as you're, we pulled up the same data from the CDC and, um, Right below what you were talking about, they have the exclusivity breastfeeding rates. So exclusively breastfeeding three months, six months. So exclusively breastfeeding starts off at 46, 45 or 47, 47% through three months and then dips down to almost 
and we'll round up to 26% by six months. So there's mm. a huge drop. And we can factor that into, you know, women not being able to stay home necessarily and yes. everything that goes into trying to continue to have your supply and pump at work. There's so many struggles with that, which we'll get into later in the podcast. Um, but that's honestly, when I read those numbers, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is they can't keep their supply up because they're going back to work. Yes. And if we were in, if we were looking at these numbers produced by Norway, uh, would there be a lot more exclusive breastfeeding through six months oh, um, where they have, uh, you know, social systems set up so that you don't have to go back to work uh, right away? Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're exactly correct. Yep. I think that and this is something, of course, we've talked about on earlier episodes, I think in particular episode one, um, where, you know, we don't have a culture that is um, conducive to new mothers in this country. And so, yes, it's no surprise that breastfeeding drops from almost 50% to 25%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, it's like a half. It's, yeah. it's put in half. Yeah. Um, and even when I think of like, you know, we know that we have workplaces. Um, actually, that was on um, a CDC report card from 2018. They said almost half, 49% of employers provide worksite lactation support programs. Uh, that that That's interesting to me. So on-site lactation consultants or the ability because I have um, information from the U.S. Department of Labor. Go ahead. Um, and it kind of lays out what women covered under FSLA are, um, what's the word I want? I guess covered, but like what they're actually, what companies have to do in order to comply with FSLA. So Yeah, so tell me what that is. Yeah. So they have to, this is very interesting, they have to provide um, a place where a woman can breastfeed comfortably, um, and that doesn't mean a bathroom. Um, It has to be something that can be covered, so it can't be an open conference room either. It has to be able to be private, Um, and it doesn't have to be, it can be temporary. It doesn't have to be permanent, which, whatever. I mean, you're, if you'd only breastfed for so long. So yeah, they have to comply with that. They have to provide a a safe place for the woman to breastfeed. They have to comply with um, however many breaks a woman needs to breastfeed. However, here's the thing. They don't have to pay you for them. Ah. So for instance, if you need, say you need to breastfeed every two hours and you're on an eight hour shift. So that's four breaks. And, you know, but you're not entitled to four breaks for an eight hour shift through your company. Yeah. Through your company. Majority of the time, an eight hour shift, you you're given sometimes an hour lunch and maybe a 15 minute break. Um, at least mm-hmm. I'm just going from, I think the requirement, I think the labor requirement is a half hour lunch and a one 15 minute break okay. for an eight hour shift. I, I'm you're 100% correct. Was, yes, yeah. yes, yes. You're 100% correct. Um, so they will pay you if you use your lunch and or 15 minute break to breastfeed or sorry, to pump. Granted, if it only takes you 15 minutes, if it takes you longer than the 15 minutes, they do not have to pay you for that time. They will allow you that time, but they do not have to pay you for that time. And those two other times that you may need to pump throughout the day, if you are able to get them, they do not have to pay you for. And so if you are, uh, <laughs> by the way, right? Like this 
seems to be an issue that would happen in an hourly wage context, not in a salary context, right? So maybe they'd right. make you punch out. Um, if I'm salaried, you're not going to, I don't think you're going to garnish my wages. Uh, that seems, that seems unlikely. However, I can see an hourly context making you punch out, which also the kind of people who are employed in an hourly wage job are, are already uh, economically vulnerable people because hourly wage jobs just don't pay what salaried wages do. And so you also are right. giving pressure for women to not um, pump as much as they need. Um, because if you need to be doing it every two hours or every three hours even to keep up supply, those breaks aren't enough. You're going to need to take another one. Um, and there's the idea of, especially with hourly. Um, so this morning I spoke with my sister-in-law really quick, um, just about kind of her experience with um, breastfeeding and whatever. And she was in a clinical setting with her first daughter, Zoe, and um, she was trying to pump. and I mean, the laws and abilities were in place that she could have gotten this time. However, she was in a clinical setting, so the time wasn't always available to her. So there wasn't even the option that she could go to it. Like, yes, um, according to the government, you do have the ability to do that. But if you have to look at it from a business standpoint, can you even take, I mean, what if you're short staffed that day? What if you're short staffed, period? Do you have the ability to send your employee to punch out for 15, 20 minutes to breastfeed in, you know, nice, calm, relaxing environment? Um, no, not always. And this is the whole reason why we're seeing these numbers of breastfeeding exclusively drop by half by six months because women aren't, you know, they may be, yes, covered to do it, but are they actually able to do it in real life? Probably not. And um, I also know of women who decided to stop pumping and to just switch to formula because there was also like a guilt around, I need to take an extra break. I need to take an extra break. I need to take an extra break. And they just decided that it's creating too much guilt and frustration. And in turn, it was messing with their supply because they were having guilt. They were having this negative connotation with pumping. So their supply was dropping. Like it's a cluster. Yeah. It's a cluster. Like I feel like once you go back to work, your your chances of continuing breastfeeding, I know it's possible because I know people who have done it, but it's astronomically harder. Yes. It's so much harder to yeah. do it. I love that you bring up the like guilt and like the whole kind of uh, culture of hardworking people that we have in this country, because it's like, you already just got back from maternity leave. So right. you're already like, you know, the quote unquote lazy person, you know, you were just on a vacation, you know, this kind of uh, rhetoric that exists around maternity leave, which is not a vacation in any way. Um, but this kind of idea, well, you weren't working, you've had it easy and now you need to take extra breaks. It's like, so if you want to be viewed, that's, that's like a kind of soft pressure that will also stop you from doing it. I completely agree. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so interesting. So like future Liz said, we did decide to cut this episode in half. We ended up talking for two and a half hours about breastfeeding, about formula feeding, about everything kind of related to that. So we felt like this was kind of a good stopping point before I get into my story about breastfeeding and formula feeding. So please come back next week to hear all about my experiences and my story. Um, we also just want to take a second and thank everyone for being here and supporting us. 
If you would be so kind, please follow us on our social media handles. We are on Twitter as well as Instagram at 7 Day Work Week Pod. It is the best way to get in touch with us. And we are also on almost all major podcast platforms. Just search The 7 Day Work Week and we will probably be there. Again, thank you so much for listening and we will see you all next week. Bye.